do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today has thought about hating himself, but now, at this moment in time, he likes himself. Welcome, Lee Gambin. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Good How are you doing? <laughs> Fine. How are you? Thank you. Having me, no, it's a, it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure, mate. So, um, yeah, so, uh, what have you been up to? Um, well, what have I been up to at the moment? I've been, I've been kind of, uh, oh, I've just wrapped up a few projects, so a couple of things I can't talk about yet, but um, I just finished, or I just had my book on Carrie and oral history on Carrie, um, finally published, so that's out now. That's just yeah, come out recently, it's on my Christmas so list. Massive... Oh, great, yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's a big sort of oral history with a whole bunch of people who worked on the film, interviewed in depth with lots of beautiful photos. Um, I just uh, did the commentary track and produced a bunch of features for The Pack. Um, 1977's The Pack are coming out from um, Scream Factory. So that's coming out very soon, a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, there's a couple of other projects under the belt which are coming up soon. But yeah, just sort of, you know, doing my thing. Lots of sort of home media work and um, the film group that I run here in Melbourne, Cinemaniacs, are doing a lot of work there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people know you and I know you from, uh, I think we we kind of work on and off the uh, same sort of organisations like Arrow and things like that and different pe bits and yeah. pieces. So we work for, I think we write for the same sort of home ink companies and things like that. But um, do you want to tell us about yeah. um, Cinemaniacs and give us a bit more info about that? Yeah, for sure. So Cinemaniacs is a, um, a DIY um, rep um, group here based in Melbourne where we screen um, films monthly, actually fortnightly now. We've been bumped up. Um, at, and our home is at ACME, the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, which is also the home for Melbourne Cinematheque and stuff. Um, and yeah, I program a bunch of movies every year and we have a whole bunch of guest speakers coming in to do talks. Um, people like Alexandra Helen Nicholas is on the board. So she does a lot of, as, as you and I do, a lot of um, work on home media stuff as well. Um, Sally Christie as well. She does a lot as well with home media. We also have like a home media branch now where people can in Australia can actually buy Blu-rays and DVDs and 4Ks, etc. because it's quite hard for people here to get stuff, but we can do it now. We can help people out there. So if they go to cinemaniacshomemedia.com.au, they can order their movies there for your Aussie listeners. But yeah, we, it's, it's a great, it's been around for a while now. I've done this for a long time and it's always fun to program stuff that's kind of either either out of the ordinary or like obvious and then with the obvious ones you just have a different angle or you just have a person who's going to do a lecture before it that's going to take you on a different journey that you don't expect from that film in particular or um you know we do guest panelists or um video featurettes before the film or all that kind of stuff it's like a whole event rather than just playing a film so that's been pretty good and it's at acme and we're doing it all the time the next one coming up at this moment is times square which is the Alan Moyle film um, with Trini Alvarado and um, Robin Johnson, which is a fun film with Tim Curry as well. 
but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, cool punk film. Yeah, and then after that, we've got um, uh, we're sticking to the kind of right girls sort of thing. We've got Sarah Jacobson's film um, Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore, which Alexandra Helen Nichols is going to introduce as well. So that's cool as well. And that sort of ties back to what we did earlier in the year, where we screened um, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Saints with Bikini Kill in conversation. We had Kathleen Hanna and Kathy Wilcox. Um, in conversation, which is pretty fucking awesome. But yeah, so we're doing all that stuff and we're constantly on the go working on that. So yeah, no rest for us, the wicked. <laughs> the fabulous stains now. There's a film. Yeah, absolutely. And that was cool because I, I, I had the pleasure of working on the Blu-ray for that um, from Imprint. Um, so that was really nice to work on. That was, yeah, a cool film to be part of. I did a joint commentary with Alison Wolf. Um, Alison Wolf, who of course is from the band Bratmobile. Um, and then there was a bunch of other people involved with that release, like Kat Allinger, who I'm sure you're friends with, yeah, and yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of people. But yeah, no, yeah, a lot of good stuff. And thank God for home media. I'm sure we'll end up talking about you know the importance of home media by the end of this convo. But yeah, well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean. What tends to come up on these episodes quite a lot, because usually I'm talking to people, not not that I've designed it this way, but I'm normally talking to people of a similar age bracket. And, and they, you know, I, I think in terms of how a lot of us got into horror, which we'll get into uh, in a minute, but it's, you know, it was those kind of double bills and things like that. It used to be on TV, certainly in Britain, in this country. But I think now... Um, you know, the, the importance of home media, I mean, it is, God knows how long it's going to last, but I mean, it is a kind of bit of a golden age, I think, you know, that it's just, you know, everything, you know, every time there's a film where you think, well, they're, they're never going to get the rights to that, or it's never going to come out, eventually it comes out, you know, the whole, yeah. we've got the Freaks box set coming out um, later on uh, next month, which is really exciting. So yeah, it seems to be every... Every few months, there's something really exciting on the on on the horizon. Yeah, and what's great is you mentioned like the idea of um, rights, but outside of that, the idea that um, films that people would would never consider having a Blu-ray release or you know these beautiful boutique releases do get that treatment, and I think that's really important because I think um, you know it kind of kills the idea of film snobbery. You know, it's like, yes, you know, uh, this film is going to get a Blu-ray. Like, it's re it's interesting. So recently, um, uh, the, the wonderful folk at Kino Lorber um, put out that they're putting out uh, Rent-A-Cop, which is the Jerry London film with Liza Minnelli and Burt Reynolds, right? And, you know, there were people posting on the thread going, ugh, why? And it's like, nah, everything deserves, you know, a release and, you know, nice deluxe kind of treatment. And so it was a pleasure after that, sort of coming out as an announcement, to be hired to work on that. Yeah, yeah. Because I was yeah. like, no, fuck you. Like, this film's actually really good. Like, I'm going to champion this film. Well, um, and one thing, like, yeah, and, and I think people miss the point that when they, if you actually rewatch it, it's like one of the most incredibly positive portrayals of a sex worker in film because Liza's character is so unapologetically in charge of her work. Uh, and anyway, I'm digressing, but I just think like no, you no, know, people fine. are just sort of missing. Yeah, they're just kind of not taking into consideration that you know each film does deserve a release, um, yeah. and it's the way to preserve the film. It's a way to keep the film alive. Like it's actually really important. It's not just 
you know, it's not just a meaningless effort. It's actually really vital to support history. I think it's kind of my duty, I think, to uh, as a writer to chat. You know, if a film is beat to death by the more people that beat up on it, the more I want to write about it and champion it. I, I, I otherwise, what's the point? What's the point in, in, in being into cinema if you're not looking at those weirdo underground gems or things that people normally don't tend to get, you know? I agree. Because, I, I, you know, I, I mean, more recently, you can, you can look at the example of the whole, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer and how that kind of split the room and and people that were ragging on those films and and at a certain point i just i i don't really care what what your opinion is because i i work you know like yourself with cinemaniacs i work at a place called broadway cinema in nottingham which is a fantastic art house cinema and you know right. they showed both barbie and oppenheimer it's the biggest weekends they've had you know that that yeah. puts money in their pockets which enables them to get you know, some obscure um, cult director in to come and do a Q and A. That that's what you know. That's what people don't get. It's like your opinion in some ways. Yeah, your opinion's valid, but you can't close things down because you don't necessarily get on board with it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Which is that kind of snobbery. It's that film snobbery, which is weird. And you know, I've been guilty of it in the past. Like, well, I'm, like, Ugh, I'm not going to say that. And it's like, no, nah, you can't be like that. You kind of have to sort of, you know, open your mind to a lot of things. I mean, sure, there's things that sort of appeal and things that don't appeal. That's a given. That's just taste. But, you know, and I, and I, and, and, you know, people like yourself and I shouldn't beat ourselves up about that too much because our tastes have a, we've got a wide breadth of knowledge and taste, which is really important, right? But, um, but you know, the snobbery thing, it's kind of like a cultural kind of, um, classism that, that I've, that I've felt before. I've talked about this before, this idea that things aren't worthy, but then certain things are. So I think home media kills that idea. So it's like, no, this awesome slasher movie from 1982 that, you know, eight people saw on its grindhouse releasing in the beginning and now become a cult favorite is going to get this beautiful box set. <laughs> with all these features and this essay, you know, and be treated academically, you know, giving the, sorry, given the academic treatment and all this stuff, because it matters. Like, so, you know, it's as important as your Lawrence of Arabia's. And maybe in the eyes of certain people, it most certainly isn't. And maybe that's a big, you know, sweeping statement. But essentially, you know, each film does deserve its own kind of, um, I don't know, platform for... For kind of uh, some sort of championing, whether it's like you know, some you know Canadian exploitation movie made in '82, or some epic from you know the Hollywood system in the '50s, it doesn't matter. I think everything's important, everything's valid, and yeah, and it sort of builds this sort of beautiful sort of um, bridge between tastes and what people care about, and I think that's cool. Okay, so what was your entry point into horror then? Oh Jesus! I, mean, I grew up with them. I was like, so I was a kid like yourself. So um, here in Australia, I've mentioned this a few times before on other um, interviews, but it's really important and really should be stressed that back in um, the late seventies and eighties and early eighties, when I was growing up as a kid, TV programming was really, really good. Like it was diverse. It was really strong. Everything was being aired. 
Um, so it ranged from, you know, westerns to musicals to classic Hollywood stuff to noir to horror films to made-for-TV movies, everything, sitcoms, t all the TV stuff was on. So it was just a really healthy, rich um, uh, experience for viewership. Like, there was a lot on and everyone sort of gravitated to certain things and there were... Uh, the programming was always sort of um, structured. So like, you know, you had your midday movies and then, you know, um, your evening movies and your late movie and then your late, late movie. So that kind of thing was a big deal um, back then. It kind of te teethed out, I reckon, in the mid 90s or even even earlier, maybe the early 90s. It sort of stopped happening the way it did um, as it was in the 80s. So horror films were obviously an essential diet for me as a kid on free to air normal television just on network tv and here in australia we had ultimately five channels but three were the major channels channel seven nine and ten which were more filmic centric and then there was um abc which had stuff but not as much films were on that but um and sbs which is like world movies but seven nine and ten would have the monopoly in your american content generally mostly and british but mostly american content and yeah the hammer stuff so all this stuff was coming out so like watching the universal monster movies were a big influence on me hammer horror um all the aip stuff um all these kind of weird oddities that would pop up late at night that i'd tape like a ghoul like setting my video player i think when the vhs player was bought in the family house it was a big deal i was a, you know, it was like, oh, fuck, this is actually like another sibling to me. Um, so that was kind of a big deal. And then the video shop. So the video shop was like, you know, essential. It was like a church. So that kind of thing was ritualistic. You'd go and rent a whole bunch of movies. Uh, and it was always horror. It was like, you know, like, like other things as well. But I'd always gravitate to the horror section. But as far as like entry point and like um, gateway sort of, you know, getting into horror and what was sort of essentially the first sort of films I remember being very, very, leaving a massive impact. It's hard to sort of say which films did that in particular, but definitely I could say that Universal Monster Movies um, and um, demonic themed films and satanic themed films and animal centric horror movies and slashes <laughs> actually as well. Those four were kind of the main things that I was like obsessed with as a child and then kind of became more and more obsessed with as I got older. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I similar story with myself especially with the um you know the late night double bills and the the universal films and the hammer films as we've discussed on this mm. podcast time and time again i think what's interesting about those uh universal films particularly because to me it's kind of split between your 30s phase and your 40s phase and your 30s phase is much more subversive and kind of you know you've got your black cats which is a very perverse film you know um but then your 40s is much more sort of playful and much more um aware of itself and they almost feel more like your kind of modern day superhero team-up type films but i think you know as an adult you know i might wax lyrical about the black cat or bride of frankenstein because they are brilliantly made films um but actually as a kid uh, i would have been far more far less enamored with something like bride of frankenstein or the original frankenstein what i wanted was monsters monsters and more monsters so things like frankenstein meets the wolfman or house of dracula or house yeah. of frankenstein they were perfect for kids <laughs> they were and the, I, bet, I love that you mentioned the two house films because House of Frankenstein is one of my favourites. Oh, it's I love great. The, like, 
yeah, it feels like two movies. Um, it's in and out. It's punchy, and yeah, like you said, you get the monster mashup. Um, and you and they they all get nice, healthy amount of screen time, which is really cool. So you have you know Caradine as Dracula, and he makes a great Dracula in that. Um, and then of course um, Lon just basically on a continuum, right? Yes, like as, yes. as Larry, he just, he just has the the and it's beautiful. It's perfect. But um, yeah, no, those monsters, the 40s ones, I've, I've been, me and friends have talked about this. The 40s ones feel like they've found their feet. I feel like Universal sort of yeah. found it, like you said, fun. And they are. The 30s ones are kind of still finding themselves, but they're just as beautiful and wonderful. And they, they like Dracula, seeing Dracula as a child was incredibly, incredibly um, important. Like that was something that really I took a lot from. Um, and, and very much so with, um, Frankenstein and Bride, but Dracula, especially, especially with D Dwight Fry, like he, oh. I was obsessed with Renfield as a kid. Um, but then later, I think my favorite of them would probably, probably be the Wolfman. Um, because just everything about that film is perfect. I think like the cast, the way it's written, the aesthetic, the way it sort of is kind of displaced. You don't know what period you're in, you know, everyone anchors outfits are very contemporary of forties, but then you've got, you know, carriages and you know these weird sort of uh old style villages you know the village itself and then you've got a very contemporary sort of landscape with you know um uh uh claude rains as world you know as, as larry's father but all that sort of stuff was really interesting and then you know of course maria Ospenskaya sort of representing the old world so it was like this really nice magpie's nest of really cool stuff that kind of was all part and parcel of the horror universe in general um, and then the monster mashup things like your House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, Frankenstein, Mr. Wolfman, they were just fun, just brilliant, you know, just heaps of fun. And then I love the latter day, you know, you mentioned the 30s and 40s, but I even love, of course, what came after the 50s stuff, you know, your yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and all the monster stuff and the atomic age stuff. You know, Tarantula is one of my favorites. And I think people forget that things like Tarantula have so much going for it outside of just this huge spider. Because you've got like Leo G. Carroll as this mutant with that beautiful makeup design. So there's all this stuff going on in that that sort of that canon. Um, that's great. And that kind of like keeps going, I think, as well into like the 70s when you have these kind of oddities like you know, which is kind of derivative of all those monster movies, you know, that whole rebirth of them that were happening again in the, in the 70s, um, where, you know, the monster movie sort of starts to transform and does something slightly different, but still holding on to that kind of essence of, of um, 30s, 40s and 50s, um, you know, aesthetic and nostalgia factor. But yeah, you know, all those things, I think, I think most horror films just always sort of, inspired me and i fell in love with them and then later as a as a sort of like getting into my i guess mid-teens i started to become really obsessed with the idea of making sure people who didn't feel that horror movies were no who, sorry um they thought horror movies were one thing i started to become really obsessed with the idea of trying to convince those people that no horror is really diverse like it's the most diverse of genres because like there's so many kinds of horror film and then also trying to convince people not even trying to well yeah trying to convince them because they didn't believe it that certain films they wouldn't consider horror films were actually indeed horror films like the amount of times you'd have arguments with people in the past go yeah i'm um, sorry psycho is a freaking horror film you know blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so that whole thing of like having to convince people because they got scared of the h word um so there was that as well so it was kind of like defending this genre that me meant so much to me and still, of course, still does. So it's that thing as well. Where it's like you protect it. It's like a child. 
Um, and it's comforting. Horror films were comforting. They've always been comforting. So when you grow up loving something and you're comforted by something, I think that never goes away. I think it's something that becomes part of you. Um, so it's really, it's a really interesting question because I think it changes as well as you get older yeah. um, to answer when people ask you, how, how did you get into it? For me, I felt like, I feel like it was innate. I feel like, show me an image of a monster, I'm there, I'm into it, you know. Um, and also the diversity, I think that's the, one of the most appealing things. You know, to see something like The Haunting or something like The Uninvited or something like, um, I don't know, uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death later or, you know, all these kind of, you know, beautiful, moody films and then seeing something like, you know, I don't know, Slumber Party Massacre and, you know, so everything's so diverse. And I think that's really important as well. I think that's something that people need to respect and honour in horror. It's not just one thing. Well, it's a, it's a weird thing to me. I mean, I, I I respect people's views. If they're not into horror, they're not into horror. But at the same time, I think, well, how can you say you're not into horror? It's like saying you don't like music. It's kind of, it's, it's so wide. It's so diverse. That's There's right. so many things in there. I don't really. That's yeah, right. If you're judging it on the the three horror films that you've accessed in your life, then uh, I would argue that you've not really right. explored this subject. That's right. There's and it's people who speak in absolutes. You hear them all the time. I don't like musicals. I don't like westerns. I don't like horror films. All right, they're not the same. There's like sorry, but Fiddler on the Roof is not the same as the Apple. Um, you know, <laughs> it really is. None of it like. <laughs> Right. So, like, you can't judge something by uh, umbrella term. So no. when you talk about horror, you've really... And when people say those statements to me, now I'm too old, so I don't even argue. I just ignore those people. I go, all right, whatever. But you kind of have to sort of, if you want, if you care about that person and want their ideas, to, you want their opinion to change because <laughs> you're invested in them, then you really sort of have to sort of sit them down and go and say to them, I bet you have seen many horror films. You just didn't realise they were horror films. And I bet you liked a lot of them. And then they'd be like, oh, you're right. Yeah, I did see Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, it is good. So, okay, well, there you go. So that kind of thing as well. And then also, you know, explaining to them um, that, you know, even like in the realm of, say, vampire cinema, they're all very different. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like Chris. Lee compared to, you know, um, Fright Night or The Lost Boys, it's all very diverse there in, in a subgenre. So it's really interesting, sort of, to constantly sort of remind people that things are not. Yeah, because you know, there, there's a massive difference between something like Werewolf of London from 1935 and Ginger Snaps. But people would, you know, exactly. throw those in together as if it's the same thing, and it's not really. That's right. <laughs> no, I did an essay once on um, on Endless Love, the Franco Zeffirelli film, and I yeah, related yeah. it to American Werewolf. I, I related it to American Werewolf in London because I felt like those two films have far more in common thematically than The Howling and American Werewolf in London, which continually get compared. It's yeah. like, okay, they're werewolf films, and that's where it ends. Yeah, they like, came out the same year, they're about... werewolf films, but that's it. That's it. That's, that's right. That's it. And so when you look at Endless Love and American Werewolf in London, they both also came out in the same year, but both as well as Universal Polydor films. They were both marketed at the same time. But if you look at them, it's both about, the both films are about a David who goes through a transformation. And anyway, yeah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> but it's quite interesting. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to see how that's sort of similar. And then you look at the howling, and I see more thematic parallels with the howling with network. You yes, know, the definitely. media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and John Sales admits that, you know, network was a massive influence on the howling. You can see it. What um, I love about the howling, yes. though, even though it came out the same year, American Wolf in London, mm. American Wolf in London feels like it's aware of the 80s. The howling feels like a 70s film. It's much, it's, mm. it's much darker and grittier. The, the opening sort of 10 minutes of The Howling when they're just riding around the city at night, I, feel, I could have been mm. lifted from Taxi Driver. It's very sort of gritty. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. But also, you're absolutely right because it's kind of like a hangover of the 70s because it's dealing with Estian, you know, belief systems and touch-me therapy pads, which were very 70s. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's very much Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice um and and the est thing was quite huge even like to the point where joel shoemaker when he wrote when he wrote the screenplay adaptation of the whiz he 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 infuses the whiz with estian stuff dorothy's journey is like this sort of like um primal scream thing if you watch that movie diana ross is screaming all the way through it because estian so all that stuff that was happening in the late 70s hangs over in the howling which comes out in 81 but it's all that kind of um late 70s touch me therapy fad thing but it makes total sense for those werewolves who are kind of living outside of the sort of um conventional society and there's a great line where um uh, patrick mcnee says we have we have to catch up with society he actually says it yeah, so it's yeah, kind yeah. of interesting the film is like sort of stunted it's like they're they're still stuck in this kind of 70s new age hippie kind of folklore sort of philosophy which is really it's such a good it's so smart like it's a really smart film. okay it's time to introduce the film we're going to be looking at today so we are going to discuss willard directed by daniel mann from 1971. this is willard and these are his friends Ben and Socrates. Willard takes good care of them, and they will do anything for Willard. My God, look at the rats. You, you made me hate myself. Well, I like myself now. Where your nightmares end, Willard begins. So, Lee... When was the first time you came across this film? Um, I came across it on television. It was on Channel 9 here in Melbourne. Uh, late at night, it played. Um, and I was really charmed by it because it, I remember seeing um, articles about it in horror rags, in magazines, and reading about it here and there, like in capsules, for uh, in horror books. And... The thinking it was going to be one thing and then when I saw it I was like this is like this charming little kids film. It, it plays out like this kids film it's got this playful score um the Willard character is not scary at all he's like this poor pathetic guy that you just want to you know take out for a couple of beers and say so, you know things are going to be okay um and then this sort of tender relationship he has with these rats um and so uh, as a kid seeing it um certain aspects of certain moments stuck out in my memory but mostly especially the the look the color the color um scheme the the color palette it had kind of a real pastel look to it 
And uh, then I saw it again um, on video. And then when video shops were phasing out and selling tapes, I grabbed it and bought a copy of it, um, which I was very happy to do because it was a very tricky film to come across. It was very hard to find. It was, um, yeah. And, yeah. And Ben, the sequel, tended to play on television <laughs> far more often. And far more often than Willard, which was always a nuisance because the best thing about Ben is the start, which is like the end of Willard. Anyway, well, yeah, it so does, it does that, it does that very 70s of... thing that they carried on into the 80s as well, where a lot of sequels, Correct. the first five minutes of a sequel is basically the last five minutes of the first film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, getting the video, I wore that out because I was like, this is so beautiful. So I just got obsessed again with it and fell in love with it. And loved the um, the the Faustian aspect to it. Um, that it's about this young man who is who has potential. Like he has potential to be successful. You know, um, he's kind of on the cusp of becoming this sort of this man, this fully fledged, fully fleshed out person. But he's just stuck in a rut. And then he has this uncanny ability to sort of relate to rats, and he deals with his social problems via the rats. And I thought that was really interesting. Then I went back and read the Ratman's Notebook. So I read that and thought that was a really cool read. Um, a pretty much more of a mood piece than an actual sort of strong sort of narrative um, work. But it was very moody and very um, uh, poignant and, and sad, really somber. Um, and then, you know, watching the movie again and again and then in prep to work on my book on eco-horror, um, I just thought that it was a really beautiful character study, a really smart character study and a really perfect, clear example, probably one of the best examples of a branch of eco-horror, of ecological horror, which I like to call the human help subgenre of eco-horror, which is basically where a human, usually a misfit sort of alienated character, um, forms a bond with animals and uses the animals to do their bidding, um, you know, to, to help them deal with their problems. And generally they kill for the person and it doesn't work out great usually for the person in question in the end. But I just thought Willard had a real charm to it. Also, the thing about Willard, which is really fascinating to me, it was on par with things like Rosemary's Baby um, or That Day, that Cold Day in the Park where it had a young person surrounded by elderly people. And these elderly yes. people are kind of garish and and, and weird and um, oppressive and like a nuisance. So if you think of Rosemary's Baby, they're all kind of, you know, they look like they're at a Florida retirement village, right, these Satanists? And they just pester her. They're constantly at her. And in this, Willard, Bruce Davison, who does such a beautiful performance, um, is surrounded by these elderly people who won't leave him alone and, you know, headed by Elsa Lanchester as his mother. Um, and then the only glimmer of hope is the lovely Sondra Locke, you know, and I was so lucky to know Sondra. Um, oh, right, and okay. I, um, yeah, I can talk about that. And I, I know Bruce. And so their insight to the film was just, you know, amazing. Um, but yeah, just a really beautiful, charming film that's really clever and just really wonderful work with rats um, from Mo DeSesso, who was an amazing animal trainer. Um, and they were like, I think Bruce Davison said that the rats were like Elizabeth Taylor on the set. They were given their own trailers. They had the um, specific air conditioning. They had the best fresh vegetables chopped up for them. They were treated like kings and queens. Um, well, yeah. And the way that they were... If you're going to be a rat on film in the 70s, <laughs> then you, you, you'd probably much prefer to be on this production than uh, 
at Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. I don't think the rats yeah. got treated quite so well on that production. No, no. And that's to do with a lot of laws in different countries. Yes. America's district, yeah. I think I, it's interesting, you know, you talk about the him being the younger person, being surrounded by older people. Because it, it, I think it is a kind of film of two halves, really. I think, you know, the first half is almost like... Um, it could almost be Ring of Brightwater. It's got that kind of vibe to it in some ways, but then it ends up as Rat Psycho, you know. And then, but then you've also got. Um, it reminded me that this is kind of this is almost like a a dark retelling of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So you know, he's he's kind of like a, a Willard is, is a bit anyway. like a Charlie Bucket character, you know. Um, mm. But he, rather than inheriting a chocolate factory, he. You'd get some sewer rats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, really Wonka's as, as dark anyway. Like, Yeah, 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 it, yeah. You know, it's actually probably darker than Willard. But, um, you know, kids dying. Um, but the um, thing about Willard is it's about the rat race. It's commenting on the rat race quite cleverly, yes. like the idea of industry, the idea of industry and capitalism and how capitalism is evil and corrupt and can turn you into some monster um and also it sort of talks about um ambition as something that's quite ugly um and then also this kind of idea of these young men at that period of time in film that were sort of being uh, being considered failures they weren't living up to expectation and you see that through the, those that film that sorry that zeitgeist during the early 70s it's kind of the end of the you know during the sort of closing moments of vietnam um you have student protest films happening you have young people kind of being displaced and we're not not knowing where they're going so this kind of alienated um aimlessness that was happening in cinema and willard's perfect was perfect example of that it's kind of that idea that this young man is trying to find himself and trying to find his um his, the route to go on um but he's kind of lost in it because he's haunted by this ghost of his father who was so idealized and such a you know such a, a beacon of of prosperity and goodness but he's dead now and willard can't fill those those shoes so and he's burdened he's constantly burdened by an ailing mother by a house that's becoming more decrepit by the minute and then by this swarm of rats which he actually then uses as an army um yes. and then also you've got him sort of countering you know his counter is of course ernest borgnine who's just vile like this grotesque character who has not one iota of any kind of um humanity um so he's kind of this ogre monstrous character who just belittles him throughout the piece and um his death is definitely warranted but it's also uh it's signing a deal that's kind of gonna end in doom for willard regardless so it's kind of an interesting sort of fairy tale and faustian this idea of he's going to sign off his soul um uh, in order to sort of gain but it's going to end in tragedy for him because he's consumed in the end by the thing that was supposed to be the aladdin and the, the sort of the genie in the lamp the wish fulfillment ends up killing him so if you look at like sort of troubled young people with wish fulfillment movies you can look at things like christine um you know yeah. things like jennifer all these movies even carrie you know these movies where characters have a quote-unquote fairy godmother whether it be telekinesis, whether yeah, yeah, it be yeah. a Plymouth, yeah, um, but they will end up, it'll end up 
eating them and killing them. Um, so that's what happens in Willard. But yeah, this this the, the beauty of Willard is that it's very much about industry and it's like a, a horror film for the corporate world, which is quite rare. Like I can think of a few others, like Mike Will uh, Mike Willis, Mike Nichols's Wolf from '94. That's a yeah. really smart um, horror film about um, industry and the corporate world. Um, that's in publishing, but that Willard's that. It's the rat race. It's a comment on the rat race, and then you have these actual <laughs> legitimate rats. Okay, uh, yeah, I just want to pick up on a couple of things there. So, um, I think, yeah, I, th I would, I would absolutely agree. I think it is, um, you know, very much obviously the rats being a, a not too subtle metaphor for the rat race and all all that kind of stuff, and this idea of industry kind of eating away at this person i think it has um kind of resonates a lot with uh, more recently with joker i think in, in terms of you know this is a guy who absolutely has tried to do the right thing he has tried to be good he has tried to do everything that society tells him to do and it's just fucked him and and in that sense, you can almost you you, you can see his his downward trajectory, and I think it's that um, you know the, the the turning point is where obviously we have you know very much his conscience being represented by the two main rats, Socrates and uh, Ben, and you know again not so subtly, but. Socrates perhaps representing his, his better side is the kind of white rat and then Ben is kind of the darker coloured rat and it's kind of this idea of his conscious, him slipping into the dark side, having tried to reach out and be good. Yeah, that's right. And also the thing is that I love about Ben is that Ben won't be trained. Ben is like the rebellious rat yes. who will sort of lead, lead the army against this human master, this oppressor. So in a sense, Ben becomes a better version of what Willard should be because Ben takes charge. He kind of, uh, he's like, nah, I'm not going to listen to you anymore um, and I'm going to dispose of you because you are disposable. Um, the thing as well, um, what you were saying about um, parallels to something like the Joker, I feel like, does the Joker have a name in that? I don't recall. Um, Arthur Fleck. Okay, cool. Um, so the difference there, I feel like definitely absolute parallels there as far as like someone trying to make efforts to, you know, be human, um, and recognize and, and respected and, and get along with life, but all, always constantly being, you know, um, always like some adversary thing would, you know, push him back. But the difference there with Arthur and Will is that Willard actually has, uh, he's presented as someone with potential, like he's handsome. He's yeah. um uh, he's he's you know resourceful. He's sweet. Um, Arthur Fleck doesn't really have that. He's kind of a bit of a grotesque from the get go. Um, so so Willard has this kind of potential, and that's the tragedy of it because he's someone who can actually move forward, but he's not allowed to. He's not given that opportunity to. And it's even in the style of Bruce Davison's performance, the way Bruce Davison is quite twitchy in it. He kind of starts to look like the rats. And also the way he's dressed, he's kind of wearing ill-fitted suits. There's a, you know, the party sequence where he looks like he's like a, a, a big kid in this blue suit um, with this party hat, etc. So it's this kind of thing of like this young man in a rut. What Bruce Davison actually told me, which was really fascinating, is when um, uh, Ratman's Notebooks was picked up an option to become a film, 
and the screenplay was being developed for Willard, the idea um, was that uh, Michael J. Pollard, who had just come off, you know, um, Bonnie and Clyde, was set to play Willard, which would have been so different because there is an actor who, I mean, he did this amazing movie, I'm not sure if you said about Billy the Kid, um, which is fantastic. He's brilliant in that. But he, he, you know, Michael J. Pollard looks the way Michael J. Pollard looks. He's a beautifully um, distinct character actor, right? He wouldn't be able to play a kind of potential handsome leading man the way Davison can. So it's a, it would be, that would have been a very different film. That would have been much more like The Joker, you know, years later, where it's this guy who's just weird from the get go. <laughs> so there's, you know, where's he going to go? Um, so Bruce Davison's casting is really interesting that it was, you know, his golden head and his, you know, uh, inoffensively handsome, um, you know, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, average sort of guy, you know, and that's, I think, a really important factor in Willard because it's about that. It's about being, you know, uh, just under the surface, flying under the radar, someone who's not extraordinary, but also not bizarre. Um, whereas when they get to the remake, when they did the, which is a great film in its own right, Crispin Glover is weird. <laughs> like he is <laughs> if you're the, casting you know, Crispin Glover, you're going to get weird. You're not going to get anything yeah, outside. He's like, he's actually fucking crazy. So it's kind <laughs> yes. of interesting, whereas like in the original film, there's potential for this young man to actually move beyond his oppressive mother and this nasty boss. You want him to, you know, get with Sandra Locke and have a nice life, but it doesn't work out that way. But what I think is really beautiful about the film is it spends its time with Willard and the rats. It, 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 they develop a friendship. And I love that you brought up Ring of Bright Water um, because that's exactly right. So during the same period as um, eco-horror films were making a splash with things like Willard and all the other films that came along at the same time, like Frogs, etc., the animal rights movement was taking a, you know flights. It was a big deal. Um, people started to talk about the environment. People started to talk about you know, um, eco-destruction, the ozone, like the depletion of the ozone layer, foresting, um, overfishing, all that stuff, indigenous rights, you know, the red power movement that was happening and the animal liberation movement was huge. And also Hollywood's connection to that with, you know, major stars like Doris Day, et cetera, really sort of championing animal rights. Um, and so at the same time, you have films reflecting that and they could be message pictures like Ring of Bright Water um, or Born Free, um, or all these movies that were happening at that time. But but also the horror films were commenting on it, on it as well. Willard, not so much. Willard is much more about a, a, a human experience. So it's actually um, very much a character study. It's about human um, revenge as opposed to um, pure animal vengeance um, until it shifts, until it becomes Ben's story, um, uh, where Ben sort of rebels against Willard. And I think that's a really cool, crucial uh, moment with the ending where Ben's not going to take orders from this guy, from this human. Um, so that kind of is really interesting because it then says that the warfare that's happening now is animals can definitely overtake humankind um, and en masse can really, you know, cause a lot of chaos and destruction. So that's what Willard sort of suggests, that humans are very vulnerable to animal um, warfare, which I think is very cool. <laughs> being an animal lover um so and these and these and these horror films of this period sort of play on those fears and those paranoias that you know snakes and spiders and cats and rats and dogs and 
all kinds of animals can turn on us. And that's what these films sort of detail. And Willard eventually does that. But throughout the first two and a half acts, it's really about this young man trying to have agency. Um, and the only way he can do it is with this wish fulfillment by training these rats who do his bidding and then it all goes to hell. But yeah, it's it's a really smart film. And I think we've both just talked about it. The idea that it's kind of um, doing so much on multiple levels, like it's talking about the rat race, it's talking about commerce, it's talking about um, industry, it's talking about um, uh, human suffering and loneliness as well. But also um, it's painted up kind of like, yeah, your ring of bright water, this really nice whimsical tale about a boy and his rat, <laughs> which is really cute. And then it turns, which I think is really a cool way to sort of plot the film. Whereas the remake that, um, uh, was it Dimension or uh, one of those sort of latter-day companies, um, New Line actually, New Line did it, um, that starts as a gothic parable straight away, you know, right off the bat. Um, his mother is totally different in that, you know, she's this grotesque that, you know, looks, you know, all decrepit and creepy. I can't remember. The actress was in um, The Dead Zone. I can't remember her name. She's wonderful in it. But, um, you know, it's already this sort of parlor horror, parlor room horror, uh, gothic, grotesque story, whereas the original Willard isn't that, you know. it's It's got this bright L.A. feel, you know. It's so brightly lit and you know really really kind of um uh colorful the color palette's crazy and thank god coming out on blu-ray i was like blown away by how good it looked because i was so used to this freaking video of it this tape of it and then finally seeing screen factory put out on blu-ray i was like oh my god look how those colors pop it's just a gorgeous good looking film yeah um, and it, it's, know, it's 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 of that era, I mean, it's one of my favourite eras in cinema, the sort of late 60s, early 70s and that crossover point. And I think that it is, mm -hmm. I, I am in love with the idea that decades don't really, you know, become the decade they are till a few years in. So really, um, Willard is very much a product of the 60s rather than a 70s film. I would argue that probably more 73 onwards, you kind of think in, in, in more absolute um, versions of the 70s. But this is very much the, the, the in-between crossover point. And I think it does, it, it has that quality. It has that kind of Eastman colour or Technicolor or whatever. And it, 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 it looks gorgeous. And I think you're absolutely yeah. right about Willard, the character, having that's the tragedy of it. You know, if you're, you know, what we say with Crispin Glover, you're presenting us with a gothic grotesque. That's that's OK. That's all well and good. That's one thing. But if you present us with a character who has this potential, he's not mm. um, he's not he, he's a. You know, potentially he's good looking. He's got this golden hair. He he's not. You know, he, he but because of the way he carries himself, because of the way he's been downtrodden and kept to a minimum, he is not fulfilling his potential. But we can see that, and and you know, to begin with, he seems to be. You know, he could be on on the turn. He could be about to get things could be about to get better for him, but then it all goes horribly wrong. And that's the tragedy of it. That's where it's like a kick in the stomach for us as well as him. Yeah, that's right. And the thing is the opportunities that sort of come to him 
are kind of reflected in the Sandra Locke character, who is yes. kind of the only, she's the hope, right? So she's kind of this light. Um, and, you know, even her offering the cat, <laughs> you know, all this kind of, which is quite funny, comical, um, but it's also quite moving because it's kind of her connecting to him via animals as well. So she understands that he's sensitive because, you know, you're not going to give a cat to anyone like you know this is an animal to be loved and, and looked after so she sees that nurturing quality in him um and then she's also treated like crap as well so she's fired because you know um Borgnine has no place for her or room for her and she's she's kind of she stands up for herself and for Willard um so she's this character who's also sort of pushed to the side as well so it's a really interesting sort of um dynamic between her and Willard and how they can find how they find each other because she's of the working class he kind of comes from wealth Willard um you know decaying and uh rapidly losing this wealth and this agency and this kind of um hold on his um empire but he still comes from that world whereas she's a working class woman you know being a temp you know, going from job to job. So the class division is really interesting, but she finds something that she can relate to with him because she sees a sensitivity. And when she sit with, because this character of Joan sees something in him that is actually decent and, and warm and engaging, that even adds more fuel to the fire of this tragedy, that there's someone else in the piece that sees something of worth in Willard. Um, his mother sees the worth, but it's all kind of conditioned and it's bizarre and she's not exactly a sympathetic character really at all um when she does die and Willard mourns her and goes into her bed there's definitely this kind of real sad morose moment there and you feel for him but the, the, the Elsa Lanchester character herself is kind of presented as this harpy this sort of screeching annoying harpy that sort of you know drains this life out of this boy whereas jo Joan Sandra Locke's character is an outsider and sort of sees things in him that are uh, purely what we're seeing. We can, we see these kind of these good qualities in this young man. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really smart. And then when he pushes her away, to, like he rescues her from the, the the from the the rats kind of taking over. That's kind of one of his last moments of of goodness of purity. Um, but yeah, also, um, it's really interesting that the film sort of taps into self-loathing, this concept when he, you know, this, this young man sort of on the road of sort of a self-destruction. And the only reason that he's staying alive really is because he has these rats that can help him because ultimately if he didn't have that genie in the lamp, that wish fulfillment, he probably would kill himself. It's that kind of, that sort of road, um, that he's headed to. So it's really that sort of um, fortunate moment in, in, in the sequence at his birthday party that he meets the rat, um, the, the first rat who births the, the babies. But yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a clever little film, but it is very much this sort of multi-layered film that does a lot without overstating it. Like it's a really smartly yeah. plotted, and you know, it's not, it's not overt in anything. Like it's just basically doing its job as a story. And it has so much going for it. And I think it's a heavy influence on a lot of films. I think people think don't, sorry, people don't think that that's the case. I think they forget that how influential Willard was. Like Willard would influence a, a, a fair few movies, 
that came out the sort of same time, things like uh, Mako, Jaws of Death, which was a William Grief film, a film like Stanley, which was about um, a Native American man who trained snakes to do his bidding. Um, You got Jennifer, uh, which is amazing. It's kind of like a Willard and Carrie ripoff where it's a young girl from an impoverished background who is bullied by these rich girls at a private school. And then she has the ability to sort of channel snakes and get snakes to do her bidding. And interestingly enough, Lisa Pelican, who played Jennifer, was married to Bruce Davison, who played Willard. So the snake girl and the rat boy were were married (laughs) at one point. Um, and you have all these other movies that sort of do Kiss of the Tarantula. Um, there's Gloria Swanson and the Killer Bees, where she controls bees. But yeah, there's there's this whole wave of these movies. Um, Pigs is one of them, where it's about this kind of uh, misfit or outsider or some you know uh, you know um, es- um, eccentric kind of character who can work with animals and um, use them to do their bidding. I mean, Willard is predated by films like Black Zoo with Michael Goff, um, you know, magnificent Michael Goff, British character actor who um, run, heads an animal worship cult um, and has these, you know, wild cats kill for him. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of them. They're great. But Willard is really influential. It did a lot of business, like it was really successful. Um, the sequel, um, you know, spawned, of course, the song from Michael Jackson, Ben. Um, but the first film did quite good business and it really sort of, really sort of um, propelled the animal horror genre. Like it came out, you know, before Jaws, um, you know, so and Jaws really sort of took that off um, and really sort of spearheaded the animal horror stuff. But Willard is one of the early sort of examples, like frogs and stuff, that did big business. Um, and also that kind of, we were talking about earlier, the idea of horror being very varied and diverse. And this is a subtle horror film. You know, there's not much, there's no gore in it. Um, you know, it's kind of playing up on Faust and, and, um, uh, tragedy more than sort of shock and scares. Um, and also if you have the innate fear of rats, if you can't look at rats, then it will play up on that. But other than that, it's a really kind of subtle horror film. It's a it's a really kind of much more like a fable, like a like a like a, a, a sort of cautionary tale. Visually as well, I like the idea of the descent. Uh, you know, which is about you know I joked earlier on about it being kind of psycho with rats, but in some ways it very much is. I mean, you you've got the character with the mother fixation or being dominated by his mother, but also. As with Psycho, you know, the first shot in Psycho were in the sky in Phoenix and the last shot in Psycho were in the swamp. You know, we've been going down and down throughout the film. Yeah. And I think you've got that here. You know, the last shot of the film is in the cellar with Willard being eaten to death by his, well, what were his kind of army of rats, but um, have turned on him. Yeah, absolutely. And the the way the film um, tonally shifts as well as yeah. as well as it does aesthetically. So it's, as you said, like yeah, it's got these sort of bright LA sun kissed sequences, and by the end, it ends up in his house in a cellar in dingy, grimy, grungy rooms, and that's really interesting because it's kind of like this gothic melodrama is just sitting in the middle of this hell. Halcyon, picturesque, sun-kissed suburbia, 
um, which is very much psycho, you know, um, psycho set in Phoenix, you know, he can't get brighter than that. But then you've got this hotel, which is like, not so much the hotel, sorry, mother's house, you know, the yes. base at home. And that looks like, you know, a gothic castle in Europe. So it's kind of just bringing, bridging that. So it's coming, you know, Psycho gets talked about as the, as the horror film that sort of brings horror to suburbia, brings it to America, bringing horror home, quote unquote, um, outside of the European Gothic landscapes. Um, and Willard is kind of very similar on that part where it's got this beautiful kind of picturesque, you know, LA, and then you've got industry LA. So like kind of factories and, you know, um, the world of commerce and the world of industry, which is very contemporary. But then you have the Styles home, which looks like a relic from a gothic melodrama. Yeah. Um, which is very similar to what was happening in 60s. You mentioned 60s stuff, Baby Jane, you know, all these movies which are set in contemporary worlds, you know, in the case of Baby Jane, it's LA, it's Hollywood, it's, you know, of its time. But then you have the, the, the sister's home and it's this gothic man, you know, manor, this this big, dark, scary, spooky house that has secret rooms. and So that kind of thing where these old world things exist in this new landscape, I think that's really interesting. I think 60s horror does that beautifully. But yeah, it's still tapping it's... into... It's very Poe and very House of Usher mixed with the kind of Bates house as well, isn't it? It's that all of those kind of influence going in there. So um, what do you think about Ben, the sequel? Ah, look, <laughs> it's, it's, it does its thing. It's a very different film. Um, yeah. I know Stavison doesn't like it. Um, I don't know if Sandra Locke mentioned that when we used to talk um rest her soul she was wonderful but she yeah ben look um i uh, lee harcourt montgomery is a great actor the, the kid he was in um a lot of great stuff he actually plays a really horrible nasty character in the pilot episode of i think it's the pilot of hotel which is a great aaron spelling show he plays a really nasty character who um him and his mates gang rape um morgan fairchild for god's sake like and that's in i think either the pilot or one of the early episodes of hotel it's really brutal like nasty but he was in like burnt offerings and you know a bunch of other things and i saw him something in something recently the same sort of time as ben can't remember Oh God, my brain. Anyway, just watch it. But yeah, he's great. And like, you know, I remember he, the critics were awful about him. They were like, oh, you know, this sickly <laughs> kind of performance. <laughs> but you know, Meredith Baxter's in it just before she gets onto Family, which is one of my favorite TV shows from the seventies. Um, and you know, uh, the rat action in that is quite plentiful. Like you get a lot of action with the rats. Like they attack a gym, they yeah. attack um, a supermarket um you know in the tunnels uh, there, there's a great image of the 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 boy getting attacked with his leg you know the rats attacking his legs which is cool but what i do like about that movie is that it, it really is about a boy and his pet rat and their best friends and that's the sweet tender sort of aspect of the film which i think is great it, however yeah, no, no. however it, i just think it doesn't do as much as what Willard does, it does. It, there's really not much to say about the film besides no. it being 
a kind of sort of semi wish fulfillment what would have been better is if the if it was far more about the young boy being bullied and him you know becoming a bit warped and using the rats led by ben to do his bidding um it's, that would have been it, much more interesting it's the puppet yeah. shows and the singing it's all of that kind of stuff i just ah, ah. you know it, it has me reaching for this sick bucket <laughs> i can't you know it's not his fault he's just given the stuff he's been given you know he's been given that script and it's just you know more's to the pity he he's the one character that doesn't end up getting eaten by rats <laughs> i was kind of rooting for that however but you did but like you said to balance the schmaltzy kind of jimmy osmond um feel that it has you you do get yeah. more kind of rat horror than you do getting willard i mean willard is a different beast you know um but mm. it, yeah it's that schmaltzy stuff but i do genuinely i think the ending is is brilliant i really you know i was really gen you know i rewatched it again yesterday really upset yeah. me the ending it's 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 quite a tragic sort of little ending or you know obviously they were trying to line it up for another sequel which never happened but yeah that the whole idea of ben escaping and being this you know injured and the little lads looking after him it's uh yeah i, I do like the ending but it's a it's a flawed film i think it is it is it's uh it's basically yeah, it's unremarkable film but i think it's mostly known for the song the the title song which yeah, was yeah 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 nominated nominated for an oscar um i recall um charlton heston um announcing it at the oscars um then michael jackson of course performing it uh, i believe definitely it's probably the only song about a rat that's ever been nominated for an oscar <laughs> <laughs> but um you know i think it's it's it's, it's a great song it's a terrific song there's no denying that um as as um much as michael jackson is vile <laughs> um but like the song itself is beautiful but the the thing th about that film again i think that's most appealing to me is that is the aesthetic i'm a sucker for that kind of you know oversaturated yeah. color um his room i always loved um you know the fact that meredith baxter's a fashion designer in the making all those little bits that sort of add to it that very 70s kind of thing where you 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 know you're piling in as much character um exposition and whatever just to sort of fill space i really like that and just the 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 way that the police deal with everything and and um the set pieces and the rat attacks i think all of it's kind of fun i think it's a it's a goofy film yeah. um it's, it's not profound like willard but it is it is fun um and i guess i think the thing the main point of contention i think um bruce davison had from memory from talking to him in depth about it was he felt that if willard was to have a sequel it deserved far better than that um and yeah he you know the idea was going to be different and i believe there were different ideas but it was actually turned out quite quickly it was made quite quickly after willard because willard made a lot of money so they were like oh let's quickly do something that you know is a bit different and um still a sequel to willard um because i think that the 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 whole idea of it named ben the concept originally was going to be more centered on the rat itself 
so humans were kind of going to be a little bit more superfluous it would have been more like a benji thing so like it would be through the eyes of the animal which would have been amazing like that would yeah. be really interesting because i mean yeah what what one thing i do like about it actually it's a small thing but it's sequels don't do it very often is is i love the fact that it it literally carries on this is like a minute after willard's finished and and we're into the film you know um i i wish yeah. sequels would do that more often i love that idea yeah halloween 2 is one yeah. that does it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It? so um to finish off then how for someone yeah. who's never seen this how would you or why would you recommend it willard or ben willard sorry okay yeah <laughs> um not, not bad how would i recommend <laughs> how would i recommend it okay i would say if you care about films about underdogs um you'd like it so it's i think that's that's a i think willard has a lot of gen, um uh a lot in common with um carrie you know that kind of thing about someone who's put upon and gets you know a moment of glory that's that's you know pure and utter revenge and that of course in willard comes with his sequence where you know the tear him up sequence with ernest borgnine but then of course you know tragedy befalls the the monster as well like carrie dies as well as willard blah blah, blah. but i think yeah for people who like films about an underdog for people who love films about um human interaction with animals um hum people who audiences who like to see animal action on screen i just want to quickly before we go just talk about mo de Sesso a bit so mo de Sesso yeah. was the animal trainer on um the rats were all his own um and he wrangled them and trained them and they were all very well looked after and there were actually quite interesting news reports talking about that and animal specialists when they watch the film the rats are actually really really happy and they do certain i can't remember exactly what they do physically but when rats are happy or really comfortable they do exactly what they do in willard and i think it's things like standing up on their hinds and twitching and and um i don't know they do these physical things that are basically the equivalent of a dog wagging his or her tail so that's really interesting to sort of see that and no decesso was an animal trainer who worked on multiple movies um and tv specials one of his biggest claim to fame was um uh um uh training sandy in the film adaptation of annie john houston's film annie um and he that was his dog uh the dog's name i think was barney and he was a otter hound um the original musical was not an otter hound he was a different breed entirely that looked a lot more like the comics of annie um that the music was based on but yeah modicesso he wasn't just a trainer he was an activist and he worked with a wide range of people from carl lewis miller to um susan backlenny um who was in jaws she was another animal trainer so yeah modicesso his work in the film is remarkable and the rats are really amazing to see on screen um i can't look at rats in real life like <laughs> to me, I, if i see i just get a bit stressed by them like they're cute but i just can't but so watching them on film when they've got like um where they're performing i'm cool with it but yeah so i think people who love animals on screen people who love stories about underdogs people who love smart clever little fables would like it people who want to see la and that part of um california in the early 70s would love it and dig it and also big fans of people like ernest borgnine and elsa lanchester oh God, yeah, yeah. and all those 
Yeah, all those character actors that are all the Al Alma, Al um, sorry, Almira Sessions. She's one of the sort of bird-like tiny old women who says, uh, I think she has one line. She goes, oh, Willard, when they're coming to the wake of his mother. But she's amazing. She's like in heaps of films throughout the decades. Like yeah, she yeah, pops yeah. up in everything. So all these kind of, um, yeah, really interesting character actors. But, yeah, and Bruce Davison and Sandra Locke, their performances. It's a great fun film. And a great score by um, Alex North. Brilliant yes. score. The music is really key, I think, into, you know, that, that tonal shift we talked about, you know, that the music is absolutely spot on. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that, you know, because I'm a freelance writer, so I spend a lot of time on my own gazing out the window um where i am in my house in the back garden I tend to get um a lot of squirrels so on a on a bad day i'm thinking could i train those willard like and and take over the city that would be good i'd love to see that mm. So, um, yeah, it just remains for me to uh, just just to remind people. Yeah, we have got a Facebook page, T for Terror on Facebook, and we have got Instagram and we're out there. So wherever you listen to your podcast, you can access us. We're literally all over the blooming place. So please check us out. And if you can write us a review because it helps me out no end. So I just need to say thank you to my guest today, who's been absolutely brilliant. So cheers, Lee Gambin, for coming on. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, so remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. I bet you're dying for a nice cup of tea for Tara. And remember, my friend, Future events such as these will affect you in the future.